All right. What a blessing. Are you all enjoying our, our, uh, our course through the Gospel of Matthew? I'm really loving it, and uh, it's been such a, a great uh, joy and looking forward to getting through the other Gospels and then getting into the book of Acts, but that'll be probably uh, some time away. Uh, hey, let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel, looking at chapter 9. We're going to finish up the chapter today. <clears throat> Anybody allergic to pine? <laughs> it's kind of ironic. I'm allergic to pine, and uh, not like deathly allergic, but it does affect my sinuses. And so uh, if you hear me from time to time turn off my mic and cough, it's because we put up our tree yesterday. And so I had sap all over me. You know how that goes. And, uh, so, uh, and if I fall over, somebody grab an EpiPen, you know, <laughs> jab me in the heart with it. Oh, just kidding. Hey, let's uh, look at verse uh, 27 of chapter 9. We, last week we looked at um, up to verse 26. <clears throat> and it was a time when, uh, obviously as Jesus has been uh, going throughout the Galilee and, and healing people, just proving that he is who he says he is. He's God in the flesh. He's able to heal, and he's able to not only attend to the very physical things that we all are familiar with, we can see and touch these things, but he is also the Lord over the unseen realm, the things that we can't see, and, and over the spirits of those realms. Certainly the angels that he created, and also the fallen angels who chose to rebel, he's Lord over them as well. He's the Lord over all things. His dominion is over all dominions. And one day, Jesus will come, and uh, very soon, uh, actually, the church will be removed. But seven years after that, he's coming back with us to this earth. And he is going to, as Daniel said, he's like that rock that was carved without hands that will come and smash all the kingdoms of the earth, and he will set up his thousand-year reign on this physical earth. So if you're worried about the sun going out and global warming, don't worry about any of that because the Bible mentions nothing of it. Not about that anyway. And so uh, be encouraged to know that God is on the throne, and you've got nothing to worry about, Christian. You've got, you can rest in his arms. You can rest in his providence. And I love that. But let's look now. Uh, last week we looked at this woman, this young girl, actually. Two women were actually restored. One young girl was brought back to life after she had already passed away. Jairus' daughter, who was the ruler of the synagogue there, in, uh, probably around Capernaum in that area. And also a, a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. And she touches the hem of Jesus' garment and is healed miraculously. And each of these people, Jairus and this woman, exhibited faith in, in, in believing that God could do what he had done before and what he could do even in their life. And I would encourage you as we go through this as well to, to understand that God can touch you. If he so chooses, there have been miracles in this body and there have been miracles uh, that I've heard of that are, are just really incredible. And God doesn't heal physically every single person. He has reasons for all these things. And I, I want to encourage you not to be discouraged by that. You know, um, when you are ailing with something, or maybe you have a terminal illness even, don't be discouraged. I, I know that's discouraging, but don't be discouraged if, if you pray and you pray and you have people anoint you with oil and they go and we, we pray over you and, and, and the Lord doesn't heal you. It doesn't mean that there's somehow sin in the camp. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. It just means that he's chosen for whatever reason at that time not to heal you. Some of the greatest saints in the Bible prayed that God would heal them, and, and God didn't, and others he did. And he has a purpose. And the thing that we don't understand is what God is doing behind the scenes. Never forget that. He's doing something in each of us that we can't see. We, we can't see each other that way, but God can. 
And there's things that he will use in my life to break me of my self-dependence, of my self-confidence, of my reliance on other things. He is faithful to break those things, and, and rightfully so. If I call him Lord and Savior, that means he's Lord over my life. And I don't need to um, try to wrest that out of his hands. I, I want him to be Lord. That means he has the right to do whatever he wants. Even if that means that my life is somehow going to be changed in such a way as to affect others. I'm already going to heaven. I know where I'm going, and so do you. I hope you have that assurance. But do you understand that there are others around you that need to know Christ? They need to be born again. They need to know and come to the same saving faith that you and I have. And if that means that I've got to go through some difficulties for other people to see God's grace at work in my life, and somehow even in the process I perish, then so be it, God. Because the day that I kneeled to you and I said, be my Lord and Savior, I gave you that right over my life. Notice it's not Savior and Lord. We'll look at that. It's Lord and Savior. And I like the order of that. The Bible pretty much mentions Lord and Savior in that order. And there's good reason for that. But now let's look at verse 27. So now as he was in Capernaum in the Galilee area healing these two women, notice it says in verse 27 that when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Notice that. Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. And as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So, Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, Lord, and we pray that, God, you would send us out. Lord, that we wouldn't miss this commission that you've given to the, early, given to the church, really, Lord. And so help us in this, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back to verse 27. Notice that when Jesus departed, the, the two blind men followed him and they cried out saying, Son of David. And, and I would have you underline that phrase because that is a very uh, significant title. Son of David. It, 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 this title that these blind men gave to Jesus wasn't just a flippant thing. They were awaiting the Messiah. They didn't know when Jesus would show up on the scene. There were all these things, prophecies, hundreds of years of prophecies that had been spoken, specific things about who the Messiah was, how he would come into the world, the different places that he would be and reside, and all those things are very clearly in the scripture for us. And what are the coincidences of those things? It's ridiculous. Do you realize the coincidence or the statistics of one person fulfilling those Old Testament prophecies? Somebody did the math, some statistician, and just even eight of those prophecies, very specific prophecies, the, 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 the odds of that are, are like so large, it becomes ridiculous. I, I'm not kidding. And yet Jesus fulfilled more than just eight. He filled a few hundred and so think of the math. Is the Savior that you're serving, that you've put your faith and your trust in, is he trustworthy? Can you count on it? Are the odds ever in your favor? Oh, yes. <laughs> the odds are very good in your favor because you've chosen one who is sure, 
You've chosen Almighty God, the creator of all things. Be excited about that and let it stir your heart again and stir us up. Lord, stir us up again. Don't let your, don't let your relationship with Christ get dull. Let him just stir it, stir it, stir it. Oh, stir us, Lord. But the son of David, this is a messianic title, do you understand? Son of David is a messianic title and perhaps partly the reason why Matthew records it here. Remember that this is the reason why Matthew wrote this gospel and the reasons for the specific events that he has given to us in it to show that, again, Jesus is the Messiah and the rightful heir to the throne of David. We see in other places in the scripture where Jesus is called by this title, and we see it in Matthew 15. Remember, a Gentile woman uh, shows her faith in Christ. It says in verse 21 that says, when Jesus went out from there, he departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is in the uh, even north of Israel into modern day Lebanon, what we would call today. But behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Even this Gentile woman was aware somehow that this son of David, this Messiah would come and here he is standing before her. They wouldn't use the term son of David for any reason other than an acknowledgement of what the scriptures have foretold hundreds of years prior. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. In Matthew 21, Jesus riding in on the donkey on Palm Sunday, remember, and then the multitudes who went before and those who followed after, what did they cry out? They said, Hosanna to the son of David. Those people on that road going from the Mount of Olives up to through the valley of Kidron up into the temple area, they knew, those people, the multitude, many of them actually knew who he was and what his mission was. But when he got into Jerusalem, they're like, who is this? They totally missed, the majority of the Jews in Jerusalem had no idea the significance of that day. But notice, Hosanna, or Lord, come quickly to the son of David. In Mark chapter 10, remember blind Bartimaeus, as Jesus was making his final trek up to Jerusalem after his ministry, ministry excuse me, in Galilee, he went down to Jericho and on his way up from Jericho to attend, uh, to continue that road that's still there today, however, it's paved, six lanes, I think. But that road now goes right up to Jerusalem. But that's the road that they took. And Jesus was on his way, and what happened? It says in Mark 10, verse 46, that they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho and his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, Have mercy on me. This blind man who was blind physically, but spiritually his heart was wide open. He knew of the prophecies, evidently. He knew there was something about this Jesus. Certainly had heard all the things that he did, and his heart was pricked to to want to know this one, his Savior. And in Matthew 22, remember what Jesus said. He says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Here, Jesus quoting from the Psalms. He says, if David then calls him Lord, how then is he his son? And certainly he was the son of David, but what they were misunderstanding was that he was the Lord of David. He was the one who was before David was even born because Jesus was pre-existent. He always has existed. There's never been a day in the history of eternity where Jesus did not exist. Yes, he came into the earth, into the womb of the Virgin Mary, but did he exist prior? Yes, he did. The Old Testament is, has a number of areas where Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, came to visit Israel and different individuals at, diff- at difficult times in their history to help them along, to reveal himself that God was with him, that he truly was Emmanuel. And so as we come upon the Christmas season and certainly Christmas Day, 
We know that Jesus was born physically, but prior to that, he existed. He always was in existence because God is omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient. And we know that Jesus was a descendant of David, and we'll look at that here shortly, but was at the same time David's Lord, again, because he preexisted before the world was made. And you might want to write down these couple of scriptures. These are very well known to us because we, we talk about them often, and they're very important for you, especially as you share them with family, especially at this time of year. But Jesus was preexistent. What does it tell us in John's gospel? In the beginning was the word. We know that the word is speaking of, the, it's the Greek word logos, but it's speaking physically of Jesus. That the word was, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. <laughs> and he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Yes. In the beginning, the word, Jesus, was there. So even before Genesis 1, verse 1, you know, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before that even happened, the word of God, Jesus Christ, the Logos, was present with God the Father. And he is God because he's one with the Father. In Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, notice what it says about his preexistence. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Remember, we've been talking about that. And as we look at these miracles, we're seeing firsthand Jesus's command over the things visible and certainly over the things invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, notice all things were created through him and for him. How wonderful is that? And notice, and he is before all things. And in him, all things consist. He is the God particle. He is the, the glue that holds the atoms together that the scientists are all still freaking out over. They're, they don't understand what's holding this atom together for all rights and purposes. Based on the science, it should be blowing up. But something's holding it together. There's a force, there's a power. And that's literally what that verse means. In him, all things consist. He is the glue that holds it all together. He is the power. And one day, he is going to release that power. And the heavens and the earth that we currently know, later on, way, way, way down on the road, he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. But this one will be consumed in, 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 in fire. It's going to happen that quick. Have you ever seen nuclear, you know, fission or fusion? <laughs> I mean, when that happens, it's instantaneous and results are very dramatic. And the Lord Jesus Christ holds it all in the hand, palm of his hand and he can release it at his will. And there's a time coming. But he is the head, it says in verse 18 of Colossians 1. He's the head of the body, the church, who... Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And that's what's so wonderful about this season, too, is that let's give Jesus the preeminence. Let's give God the preeminence. Not anything else, not anything else, not anybody else, but Jesus alone. Give him the preeminence in your heart. May this be all about him as it always has been, always will be. So not only was he pre-existent, but we know that based on in Matthew's gospel, it shows the physical lineage of Jesus going all the way back to, uh, to um, Abraham. In fact, it tells us in Matthew's gospel, in the very first verse, in the 17th verse, it says the beginning of the book of Je the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why is that such a big deal? We're going to look at that. Why is it such a big deal? Why was it such a big deal that these two blind men called him the son of David? Well, you're seeing part of it right here. Because even in his genealogy, there's a lot of names, but it, it goes from Abraham. And why didn't it go to somebody else? Why did it go right to David? We're going to look at that. And then from David to Jesus Christ. The son of David, but yet David's Lord. I love this. This is amazing. And notice what it says in the 17th verse of the first chapter of Matthew. It says, so, all, so it lists all these names of people. And it says, so all the generations 
From Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity of Babylon in 586 or 606 BC. Notice our 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are another 14 generations. Yes, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and ultimately to Jesus Christ. And then in Luke's gospel, we know that that lineage goes even back to Adam, and it goes on Mary's side, on Mary's father, on her side, because she was from the line of Judah as well. And Luke's gospel gives us that lineage. But from Genesis all the way through Malachi of the Old Testament, there were prophecies of the birth, the ministry, the life, the death, the resurrection, the second coming of Jesus the Messiah, and prophecies specifically speaking of his kingship of his kingship. And that's what I want to just share with you for a few minutes here as we go, because when, they, when these two blind men say, son of David, that word, that phrase is pregnant with so much. It's just bursting at the seams with so much there. And, and I think you'll see why. If we look through Genesis chapter 49, uh, oop, I got to go back one here. Nope, that's right. Sorry. So um, if we go back to Genesis chapter 49, I want you to see in these verses, and if, Lord willing, I'll be able to show this to you very clearly. The son of David. David was a king, was he not? And wasn't the idea of, of Matthew's gospel to show that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David? Well, if these claims are such, then there must be a lot of background bringing us to that understanding. You follow me? There has to be something from the Old Testament that is bringing us to this place. And when we look at Genesis 49, verse 10, remember when Jacob was on his deathbed and he's prophesying over his 12 sons. He comes to Judah and he says, the scepter, he speaks as he's there on his bed ready to die. He speaks to Judah and he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, what is a scepter? A scepter is a symbol, a, 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 a pole a, with some kind of instrument on it. That, it's, it's something that a king would hold out, speaking of his authority, right? And so when it speaks, he's speaking to Judah. He didn't say this to any of the other tribes, but to Judah himself, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Speaking of a, a, a reference to Jesus, Shiloh, the, the, the peaceful one. And to him the, be, shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Does it sound like when he, when he got the, the donkey before he rode in on Jerusalem? There's certainly a reference to it here. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Speaking very clearly of Jesus, the scepter would not depart from Judah Speaking of his kingship, yes, the son of David, because David was one of the best kings Israel ever had. And Jesus would come from the line of Judah, the same line that, that uh, David would come through. And then notice in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll read it to you, but you can write the reference down. The Davidic covenant is what this is referred to when God spoke to David Concerning his future, he says, when the days are fulfilled, verse 12, and you rest with your fathers, notice, I will set up your seed after you, the seed being obviously Christ, and also speaking of Solomon in the short term, who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. But notice, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So now David knows that he's got a son that's coming that's going to begin his, you know, building a house for, for the temple. But then he goes way beyond that now because, you know, if you build a throne of, uh, of a kingdom forever, that means that it never ends, right? Well, and then in verse 14, he goes on, the Lord does, speaking through the prophet to David, and I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, of course, we're speaking of Solomon here, 
I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And then verse 16 is the, 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 the part that we want to get to. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Do you see that? It's speaking of the kinship, the kingship, excuse me, of Jesus. And what about this favorite verse that we love around Christmas time, Isaiah? For unto us, we sang it this morning. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. In other words, uh, he, God will, Jesus will have the strength. He will be the strength, but it will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called what? This child that's going to be born, his name is going to be called his name, not her name, not it, but his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This son who would be born. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end until, and then notice, here it is again, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward and forever. Do you see? Mentions David. And it's speaking of one who would come from David, come from Judah, this ruler, this king, specifically a king. So now when we look at these two blind men saying, son of David, they know what they're talking about. Perhaps they were like good Jewish boys. They were always in synagogue and they read this scripture. They knew that the Messiah was coming and that he would be from the tribe of Judah, from David's loins in a, in a sense, in the, in the, in the natural, in the physical but then we go on to Daniel, chapter 9, verse 25. What does it say? Remember that wonderful prophecy of Daniel that really ties in all of the last times events, the eschatological wonder that it is. What does it say? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, literally the Mashiach Nagid, Nagid is king, the Messiah, the king. So from the going forth of the commandment until Messiah, the prince. Remember when he rode in on the donkey? We looked at that prophecy. One of the most amazing, incredible prophecies in all the Bible. Messiah, the king. Even Daniel, speaking of this one who would rule. Messiah, the king, the prince, the ruler. And then and finally in Zechariah, one of my other favorite verses, the book of Zechariah, especially in the latter chapters, is, I always confuse it being in the Old Testament because it speaks so clearly of things that are yet future to us. And I, th I think of it in a New Testament sense, and you'll see why. Notice what he says here in Zechariah 14. And this is speaking of when Jesus comes back to the earth, his second coming, not the rapture of the church, that happens first, and then there's a seven-year tribulation. But at the end of that, he comes back physically to the earth with all the saints with him. And what does it say when he comes back? It says this, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Yes, Armageddon is what he's speaking about. And, I will, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then the Lord, notice, then Jehovah will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Notice that. Every king, David himself, when he went out to battle, he went out with them, except for that event where he didn't, and he got in trouble with Bathsheba. But every other time, he would go out into battle with them. That's what a king does. He's representing the, the nation of Israel, and he's not going to tell those guys, well, you guys go out and fight. I'm going to stay home in the hot tub. I'm going to sit there with my cigar and, you know, and drink wine. No, he's going out with them. And that's one of the things that endeared his men to David. They loved him because he was not some... A uh, soft guy in a robe. No, he was a man's man. He was out there with a sword and wielding it with the rest of them. A great warrior. 
And Jesus, when he comes back the second time to the earth, he's coming back, not as the baby, the meek and mild baby Jesus coming to save us from our sins. No, he, that ministry has already happened, but when he comes back, he's coming back as, with vengeance upon a world that has rejected him. That's why you don't have to worry about anything that's happening because we know the end of the story. We know what's coming. The world doesn't, and that's why it's so important, as we'll get to later, that's why it's so important for us to go out and share that message, the gospel message. It's the most important message of all. And notice it goes on here. I, I, got, I got to finish this Zechariah passage because it's so wonderful. And in that day, his feet, the Messiah, will stand on the Mount of Olives. Yes, the Mount of Olives, that's just opposite the Temple Mount today on its eastern side, with the Kidron Valley in between. His feet will stand on that day on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain removes toward the north and toward the south, and it's going to be an amazing event when that happens, at Jesus' second coming. But see, these are just Old Testament prophecies. There are more, but these specifically speak of Jesus in his kingship, speak specifically of his being the son of David, because that phrase is messianic, and it means something. It means something, and it meant something to these men who were blind, and these other people that had called Jesus by that title. There's no other reason to call him the son of David unless they were acknowledging his right to rule and his kingship. Do you follow? Isn't it wonderful? Everybody take a break and look up and smile because this is great stuff, right? It is. I love this. I hope you love it too. Otherwise, I'll be the only one excited in the room, but I know that that's not the case. This is so wonderful. The scripture is so wonderful. That's why it's good for us to be students of it. But Jesus is the son of David, the son of God, the rightful heir. And Jesus is coming again soon, folks. Don't be discouraged. He's going to right this ship of humanity. He's going to right it. He's going to steer it back. He's going to create a new thing that's been steering off course for millennia. And it's not going to be about a president or a politician, what they can do. It's going to be all about what he can do, what he is going to do. That's where we need to put our faith firmly and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? Yes, notice now in verse 28, back in our text, it says, And when he had come into the house, these two blind men come to him. They, they, they have this exclamation of Jesus being the son of David. So he comes into the house, the blind men come to him, and Jesus said to them, notice, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Notice the question. And they said, yes, Lord. <laughs> Underline that. Yes, Lord, we do. Notice that Jesus didn't heal them in the street and then send them on our way. He could have. It could have been a very public spectacle. But at this time, Jesus was wanting to do things privately and intimately when he could. And this was one of those moments. That's why he comes into the house. They follow him into the house because they're like, if this guy doesn't heal us, we're going to remain blind. So he went into the house, they followed him, and he asked them the question, and then their healing seemed to be conditioned on whether they would believe that Jesus could do it. Do you see that? This seems weird to us, but even when Jesus was in Nazareth, remember in Matthew chapter 13, when he was in Nazareth, he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house, and then he says this, how, he says, now he did not do many mighty works there because of what? Their fantastic belief. Boy, they were just marvelous. They knew right where I came from. They, you know, they brought me breakfast in bed. No, they didn't. They, they, they didn't believe in him at all. They didn't believe in him at all. And he couldn't do many mighty works there. Why? Because he was unable? No, he was able, but because of their unbelief. It was their unbelief that was the tourniquet around their healing or not. Now, we have to be really careful when we talk about this faith and healing because the, the church today has made a circus about this stuff. And it, it, we, we can't go there. We can't go there and play games like that. Notice that also that they called him Lord, affirming their faith and their trust in him. And I got to ask you this morning, or for those of you who are watching or will be hearing, is, is Jesus the Lord over your life? Is he still the baby in the, in the manger to you? Is he just this you know, cute little thing and 
something special happened, but, you know, I, I believe in him, I think. No, no, it can't be that. Do you know him? Is he the Lord of your life? Is he Lord and Savior, or is he Savior and Lord? And Because if he isn't Lord over your life, what confidence do you have in him being your Savior? I know I'm on slippery ground here, because I, I pray that you don't misunderstand this, but most people struggle who most people who struggle with the assurance of their salvation in Christ are usually those who aren't making Jesus lord over their life there's no confidence in their life at all that they're saved because they're not letting him be lord over their life they're still allowing things in their life they know they ought not to and they're allowing so many things into their life when the bible clearly tells you to be careful about this stuff and to get rid of it and to crucify those old members of the flesh we don't do it so we got this all this baggage and then the next thing you know is that there's no confidence now you may be truly saved i'm not saying that but your confidence and and i've known people like this they believe in Jesus as blood, for, you know, died, he died on the cross for me. They get it and they believe that. And, and I believe they're going to heaven, but they don't have an assurance. Because there's so much of this stuff in their life. He's not Lord over their life. He's just their Savior. And that's good enough. It is good enough. Don't misunderstand me. However, there are people who struggle with the assurance because they're, they're continuing in their sin and they're not being serious about their relationship with Christ. And so they walk around with a question mark over their head. Is that any way to live? If you are a Christian, be all in. Jump in, jump over, not literally, jump over the cliff and commit yourself to him fully and completely, 100%. Don't nibble at don't nibble on it. No, take the parachute or not and just jump. Completely surrendered. <laughs> oh, there's no greater place to be than completely surrendered. Completely sold out to Jesus. Be sold out and you will have the assurance more than many people. Because you're, you're saying, Lord, you wake up, whatever you want to do. I'm, I'm, I'm all yours. Even the distractions, even the things that happen that I don't like, Lord, you're in control. I believe you. I trust you. Whatever you want to do in my life. Verse 29, then notice, they said, yes, Lord, we believe. And he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, notice, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And Jesus healed other people who were blind, and it wasn't always the same way. We know that in Mark's gospel, that they brought to him a blind uh, man to him, and he begged him to touch him. And so he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the town, and when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on them, he asked them if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men walking like trees. And then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. And then he sent them away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. This is just between you and I. I don't need the news people there. I don't need the radio. I don't need the, the TV. This is just between us. Tell no one of this. It's just me and you. Aren't you glad that Jesus treats you that way? Do you know him that way? A personal savior, not just this savior that's out here somewhere, but a personal God, because that's who he is. He's your Savior. He died for you. And He loves you. Even with all of your issues and problems and issues, you know, just we have all got them, don't we? We all got our issues and problems, and the Lord is big enough and He's okay. He's going to work it all out. We're, remember, we're in a process of sanctification. That means that we're being sanctified little by little every day. None of us are perfect in this room. We still got, you know, issues. But God is working. Are you willing to let him work? Let him work. And notice that he didn't do with this blind man that we just read in Mark. He did a little different than the other guy. Why is that? I don't know. I don't have the answer. But he did it. Maybe there was something that Jesus needed to do in this man. But see, you can't pigeonhole Jesus. You can't pigeonhole a Christian either. Because a Christian's master and Lord is Jesus. Not a movement. It's nothing other than we are his. Our master is Jesus. Notice verse 30, and their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows it. Notice again the secrecy. 
Any other man would have been tempted. Any other pastor, any other evangelist would have made sure that the cameras right in on the guy's face as he was healed and seen the expression of joy. You know, they would make sure that they captured it all because it would be on at 11 o'clock, you know. Not Jesus. Any other man would have been tempted to perform the healing in front of the whole town with all of the mainstream media there to televise it. But Jesus' hour had not yet come. He was careful about the publicity. The more popular he became, the more difficult it became for, became for him to be mobile and move around and continue doing what he was doing. He knew there was a time when he would fully manifest himself to Israel, and he did when he rode in on that day, the, the, the week before he was crucified, Palm Sunday. He fully manifested himself to Israel, and they didn't get it. They didn't know it. They failed in their understanding of who he was. He came in as the Mashiach Nagid, as Daniel 9, verse 26 and 27 told us, fulfilling the prophecies going way back, specifically on a very specific day. But notice, when they departed, verse 31, they spread the news about him in all that country. You know, it's good news is hard to uh, keep quiet, isn't it? I remember the story about... Um, uh, Pastor Jeff was sharing this with me, and I think even here in the, in the pulpit at one point. He was over in Israel, and they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there was a woman on the trip. I wasn't on this particular trip, but um, one of the pastors was teaching, and I, it may have been him, it may have been uh, Pastor Bill or Scott, I don't remember. But uh, the woman who came along, she, was, uh, she, she had to walk on crutches, and sometimes she had to be in a wheelchair because her, her, her foot was really mangled, and it was a very serious condition. And she could not walk on that foot. She couldn't. So they're there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I had the privilege of uh, a couple years ago uh, teaching there uh, in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I was anointed by a dove. Thank God I had my Yankees hat on because it landed right on the bill of my Yankees hat. I was anointed by a dove right in the garden, yeah. But anyway, so the woman is sitting there, and she, and right in the middle of a Bible study, she starts to giggle, and she starts to kind of squeal a little bit, and everyone's kind of like looking, like, what's going on here? And she goes, I think the Lord just healed me. I think the Lord just healed me. And she, she grabs her crutch, and she starts to put weight on her feet. Next thing you know, she throws her crutches down. She's walking around, and everyone is just confounded. The Lord healed her right there at the garden. And I don't even, and Jeff was sharing this, this with me. He's like, I don't even think we were speaking about healing or anything. We were just sharing a study in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Lord touches this woman. And it was a real thing, folks. And it's hard to keep that news quiet, wouldn't you agree? And from what I understand, she kind of did a little jig and started dancing around that area there because she was so excited about what the Lord had done. I find that remarkable. And I find that very easy for the Lord to do. He is Jehovah Rapha, amen? So notice verse 32, So they went out, and behold, they brought to him a man who was mute and demon-possessed. Notice that he was brought. The man did not come, apparently, of his own volition. So um, were the multitudes and the Pharisees who were there, were they seeking to test Jesus? Were they there to ask for another sign? Jesus said to Thomas, he says, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You know, were they looking for another sign that, oh, if I just see another miracle, I'll believe. I love what this old English preacher named Ivor Powell said. He said, True faith knows how to walk in the dark. Alas, many people require the crutches of sensationalism before they take a step. I love that. Jesus was not about being sensational. But that day when that woman threw off her crutches and was dancing around now, when before she was not able, when she walked in with those crutches into the garden, she was still infirm. And now she was dancing. But God, it was her time. 
God did something special for her. And you know, we ought to rejoice when God does that in the lives of other people, even if you are still struggling in your own infirmity. Can we rejoice with others and weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice? That's part of being a Christian. And you know, the more your theology catches up to your heart, the more we can do that. Because having all the head knowledge is fine and good, but it's got to get here. And then once it does, it just takes on a whole new facet. It takes on a whole new life. And it's so beautiful. So verse 33, when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled, notice, saying it was never seen like this in Israel. This is interesting because once the man was delivered from the demon, he was able to speak again. Now, I don't want to presume anything by what I'm about to say, but I do find it interesting that some conditions, some conditions, some conditions that people are in can, can be due to demonic activity, but not all. <laughs> not all. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And notice, and Jesus healed him so that the blind and the mute man both spake and he saw. And then all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be, here's the phrase again, the son of David? Could this be the son of David? It is the son of David. Now, we must be careful in this because there are many conditions of blindness or other conditions that have nothing to do with demon possession. Do you follow? It seems very obvious that in instances like this, the demon possession caused the man to be blind or mute or just mute. And when the demon was delivered from the person, the person could hear or see or vice versa. And so there are those things. But what about Fanny Crosby? Anybody heard of Fanny Crosby? We sing some of her hymns. She's a hymn writer of the 19th century, wrote over 8,000 hymns. She was a strong believer in Jesus Christ. And from an infant until the day of her death, she was born blind. (laughs) Blind, but certainly not demon-possessed, but rather filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? The woman was filled. And how many sicknesses or diseases are brought about by Demonic, not possession, but oppression. Do you follow me? There's demonic possession where a spirit indwells a person, causing them to get sick. And then there's other times where you are being oppressed by the devil and you may get sick. You, you may, your sickness may be because of that. It may not have anything to do with it, but it may be something to it. And the scripture supports that. We know that Satan is a destroyer, and, he, uh, and, and sickness and disease, we know, are the consequence of the fall of man that began back in the garden. What about Job's illness was brought about by demonic oppression? Notice oppression, not possession. Big difference. In Job chapter 2, what does it say? And there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said, from where do you come? And Satan answered, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on all the earth, a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him, notice, without a cause. And so Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. There are the parameters that God gives to Satan's activity. All right, game on. You can do a certain amount, but you can't take his life. Now, that may bother some of you, and I understand, but that's true. Anything that comes into my life is something that God is either designing for my good, and at the end of Job's life, certainly he was in a much better place, you follow? But he went through a very difficult time, and some of you are going through difficult times, and the Lord has allowed it for your growth. Somehow, I don't even know 
That's his business. I don't have a clue. And maybe it has nothing to do with anything. Maybe, you know, sickness is just part of life. It doesn't mean that there's some kind of oppression happening. But because Satan is the destroyer and, the, and the, everything unclean and unhealthy, we're certainly living in a fallen world. And still in these bodies, we bear it out in our flesh and bones, don't we? We get sick. It doesn't mean that we're possessed. It doesn't mean even that we're oppressed. It could mean that we've just got the flu. <laughs> but notice that this was an oppression from Satan specifically to Job. And God allowed it. But God knew what Satan didn't know. He knew the end of the story. He knew exactly what Job was going to go through. He knew what Job was going to feel. He, he knew what Job's wife would say to Job. Why don't you just give up and curse God and die? Thank you, honey. What a Proverbs 31 woman she is. What a wonderful gal. She makes great stew, but thank you for telling me to curse God and die. What a wonderful thing. But God allows him to be touched. And he is at his wit's end. And he goes through it. And many of you have gone through it. Or many of you will go through something. Maybe not as bad as Job. Maybe worse. But you hang on to Christ. You hang on to him. But notice what, back in our text now, it says, uh, but the Pharisees, when they saw the, the, the demon being cast out of this deaf and mute guy, the Pharisee says he cast out demons by the, by the ruler of the demons. In other words, he's Satan himself. By the very, Satan himself is casting out the demons. And what did Jesus say in Matthew concerning this? Earlier in Jesus' ministry, we looked at this earlier that, that, that the Lord uh, healed the blind man. But then in verse 24 of Matthew 12, he says, Now when the Pharisees heard that, they said, This fellow does cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said, Every kingdom is divided against itself. Or every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? No, he wasn't the casting out demons by the spirit of Beelzebub. That would be foolishness. His kingdom wouldn't last if he did that. The spirit of God and then came upon him. Immediately after this verse, in verse 34, we're not going to make it through the chapter today. I wanted to, but we'll finish it next week. Um, immediately after verse 34 here in chapter 9, chronologically, immediately after verse 34, what happened was what occurred in Matthew 13. Verses 57 through 58. Um, it was when Jesus was in Nazareth. And now he is going to go there. Finally, the very last time before he would ever go back there again, Jesus would go there. And, and, and we read this before, but remember what Jesus said. He said to them, because of their offense at him being who he said he was, they were offended at him, verse 57 in Matthew 13. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And notice verse 58, it says, Now he did not do many mighty works there because of what? Their unbelief. Their unbelief. So I want to encourage you today, you know, to be believing. Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of God. And all of these things were written. Didn't Jesus say, behold, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. That means that 
the book they had at that time was what? The Old Testament. And it's certainly true in the volume of the book of the, of the New Testament. It is certainly about him because the Gospels are all about him. The book of Acts are certainly about what he did in the lives of the men and, and women in, in, the, in the first century church. And all of Paul's letters attest to what he did in these different places. And the rest of the New Testament affirms very clearly in getting into Revelation In the volume of the book, it is written of me, the son of David. Can you trust this son of David? Is he the king of your life? Is he the, the master and the savior of your life? Can you trust him with your healing or not? And what I mean by that, he, he may heal you. He may heal you with medicine. It may be a slow thing. It may be something that he doesn't heal you dramatically and divinely right on the spot. He may take time, and I don't understand it. I remember uh, as a pastor, this is kind of humiliating, but I'll tell you the, the truth. Uh, we, we, we were anointed a woman with oil and prayed for her a couple times. And uh, Actually, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a, a little while ago. And she came back the next Sunday, and she says, you know, Pastor Rob, I, um, when you prayed and anointed me with oil, I actually feel worse. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, maybe there's something wrong with me, you know. I, you know I, 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 but then I didn't go there because I know that's foolishness, right? And so God didn't, at least not then. She's feeling a little better now. But that's his business. We just have to be faithful, right? When we call for the elders and we anoint with oil, we, I believe, and I know that in my heart, God is able. I believe that. Do you believe that? I, I believe he is. I believe the scripture is replete with all of these things to foster our faith and our encouragement in who he is. And that's good for me. That's good enough for me. Even if I receive nothing else from the Lord, he has given me so much more than I could ever deserve. Even right now, I could never deserve it. And I know you feel the same. I could never deserve it. But he, folks, listen. Even, you know, what what does the Bible say? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. If you're going through a sickness or something... Even if you're terminally ill, and I know of a few people who are right now who go to this fellowship, one individual specifically is terminally ill. And unless God does a miracle, the Lord's going to take him. And I pray for him today that he would know, that he would know that Christ loves him, that Jesus Christ paid the price. And even though he's allowing things to take their course, don't ever for a minute think that God doesn't love you. Don't ever think that he's abandoned you. But know and have an assurance And I pray that for us as well, that we would all have the assurance that, yes, he's not just my savior. I'm so glad he's my savior. Are you, anybody, (laughs) glad he's your savior? I am so glad, but the thing that I, I, I want more now, that I want to be more of a reality as I go through this understanding that he is my savior, I want you to be Lord over me, Lord. I want you to be my Lord first and then my Savior. But thank God he saved us and we're in a process of allowing him to be Lord and he's okay with that because he knows. Even Paul does. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Why do I do the things that I don't want to do and the things that I want to do are the things that I I, I didn't do and I should because I know that they're right things to do and and, and the battle, this old nature and this new nature now are like butting heads like... The football guys are going to do today. They're going to butt heads. This old nature and the new nature, they are at war. They're at enmity with one another. God wants to have the supremacy, and all we have to do is allow him to do it. 
Lord, would you take control? Would you be the Lord? If you would like the Lord, who is not only your Savior, if you would like him to be Lord over your life, would you stand with me? That puts a lot of pressure on those of you who are going to sit because now we're going to be thinking, wow, we really need to get to them. So you might as well stand if you can. (laughs) The Lord knows our hearts, doesn't he? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this um, passage and uh, thank you for uh, that you're you're a compassionate God. And Lord, we've learned a lot about you today. And Lord, thank you for the scripture, Lord, how it encourages our hearts. Lord, how you give us great depth in it, how you prove yourself over and over again, Lord, just giving us everything we need just to to shore up our faith, Lord, to help us in these troubled times that we live in, God. Would you please be our Lord and our Savior? And Lord, each day may we relinquish more control of our life and allow you to be Lord over it, God. Would you be Lord over my life, Lord, complete Lord, and, and, and take anything in my life that is not of you and replace it with what you want, what you desire, and do that in the lives of each one of us today, Lord. How we plead for your mercy and grace today, Lord, knowing that you're a loving and gracious God, how we thank you and praise you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.